Do not fear. Oh my, that's great advice. That sounds like good biblical counsel. But when the preacher says, I'm scared, I need to get out of here, he doesn't take his own advice. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are studying the prophet Elijah from 1st and 2nd Kings. And in a message entitled, Overcoming Discouragement, we find that Elijah, who has had a mountaintop experience overseeing God's destruction of 800 prophets of Baal, suddenly tucks tail and runs from the wicked Queen Jezebel, who has put out a contract on his life. Let's rejoin Dr. Brogy as he picks up in 1 Kings 19, verse 3. So here's Jezebel, a depraved woman. Everything is consumed there on top of Mount Carmel, except the blindness of her false worship to Baal. You know, unless God works, all of our efforts are useless. And she's so hard, and she says, Elijah, I hate you. I'm going to kill you. And when Elijah gets wind of this, he gets the Jezebel jitters. Beginning now in verse 3, we move from Elijah's difficult circumstances to Elijah's lack of faith. Let's look, if you will, now at verse 3. And he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servants there. Elijah runs, and he runs through, uh, runs south through Judah. He runs all the way through the southern kingdom, all the way to Bathsheba. It's about a 120-mile trip. Here's a map just to give you some perspective and to get your geographical bearings clear. Again, remember, he had been at Mount Carmel. He goes to Jezreel, and then he goes all the way to the south. And you can see here on the map that Beersheba is out there um, west of the Dead Sea. It's a very wilderness, a very desolate kind of place. Now, can you believe that this great man of God would fall under such incredible intimidation? He had faced an entire nation that had opposed him. He personally with the strength of God, executed the 850 prophets of Baal and the Asherah. He, by the strength of God, outran Ahab's chariot 18 to 20 miles all the way down to Jezreel. He had seen God's provision at a brook in Zarephath. He saw the Lord take care of him through a widow. He saw God's protection. He even raised a little boy who had been dead back to life, and you would have thought that this man at this point would have unshakable faith. What happened? There's a lesson that we can learn from this prophet concerning the cause of discouragement. Discouragement happens when you forget what God did yesterday, because you're looking at the circumstances that you are harboring today. When you forget what God did yesterday, because you're looking at your circumstances today, you will quickly become discouraged. Yesterday, the only thing in Elijah's vision was the Lord God. Today, all he can see is Jezebel. And so his perspective is really distorted, and so discouragement sets in when you really forget what God did. He had just come off of a great victory on top of Mount Carmel. 
And yet Jezebel, she can come up with this little statement that she swears in the name of a God that he just demonstrated as a non-entity, and he gets the Jezebel jitters. Why? Because he had forgotten what God had done, and we're going to see why he forgot in just a moment. But one of the reasons sometimes we get discouraged, sometimes we want to quit, is because we forget what God did yesterday. We forget his faithfulness. We forget how he met us in the past, and we become consumed with today. And there are too many Christians who put God in the past. Listen, I've been in more than one church where I've preached, and I've heard the people say, oh, God used to do something great here. We used to see people come to the Lord. We saw a dynamic movement. People were joining all the time. We were having an impact in our community. My, weren't those great days. And on more than one occasion, I've wanted to say, is God dead? Is God not still alive? Do you just have to reminisce about the good old days? Have you forgotten what God can do this day? And God is sufficient today, and I want to remind you that if you're ever going to overcome discouragement, then you cannot leave God up on top of Mount Carmel. You must bring him down to Jezreel where you're living today. The God of yesterday, the Bible says, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never, ever, ever changes. And in the New Testament, in fact, why don't you turn to the book of Hebrews chapter uh, 12 for a moment. Hebrews chapter 12. The book of Hebrews is written to Jewish believers. It's an incredible uh, argument and that these are Jewish believers who, because they are Jews and confessed Jesus to be Lord, had fallen under great persecution. Some of their businesses were be, being boycotted. They were being persecuted, but not to the point, the writer says, of shedding their blood. And so the writer to the Hebrews, we call it the orphan epistle because we don't know who wrote it. We can say it was not Paul because it has none of his marks. But nonetheless, the human author that God used to write it shows the superiority of the Lord Jesus over the Old Covenant. And after he spends 11 chapters describing that, you come to the applicational section in chapter 12 and verse 1. Look at Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Now, of course, whenever you see the word therefore, the careful student of Scripture will ask, what is the therefore, therefore? And it's there in light of the illustrations that he had just come off of in chapter 11, where he underscores several dozen great men and women of faith who believed God during the Old Testament era. So this is an applicational word. In light of what I've just taught here in the 11th chapter and really the 10 chapters that preceded it, that chapter, this is how I want you to live. He has given us some inspiration that we in turn might exert some perspiration. And there are a lot of people who get all inspired in hearing God's word, but they don't do anything with that inspiration. They get all inspired to be a follower of Christ, but they just sit there. 
when in the 10th chapter, a verse that we've heard quoted a lot during these COVID days that we're not to forsake our assembling together, the reason some of them were forsaking their assembling together, because when they showed up at church, they ended up getting persecuted. The reason we forsake our assembling, because it's raining. We want to sleep in and watch it on TV. Listen, when we have the opportunity to be here, we should be here. You can get inspired. You can be inspired to become a runner. But if you don't put on the shoes and get out there and do it, it will never happen. So chapter 12 begins with that word, therefore. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, and contextually this great cloud of witnesses refer to those great men and women of the faith that he's just described in the 11th chapter. And I emphasize that because if you've ever heard this verse taught, then you know that the point of, there is a point of rub in interpreting this verse. And the point of rub is not so much, at least for even the casual reader of Scripture, on the identification of the witnesses, but on our relationship to those witnesses. Some who preach this passage paint the scenario that we, the Christians, are living down, say, on the playing field of life, and there's cloud of witnesses, especially those in the Old Testament who have gone on before us. They're watching us. They're cheering us on as we run the race called the Christian life. Nothing could be further from the truth. Many speak sometimes that it makes for colorful preaching and emotional preaching that even their loved ones who've gone on, their father, their mother, their grandfather, their grandmother, are there watching their performance. Listen, there's not one verse of Scripture that the saved in heaven are looking down and they're watching and cheering us on. In fact, if heaven were like that, if they could watch us, I suppose it would make heaven a little bit more like hell. But actually, the Bible teaches that there's a greater motivation for godly performance, and it's the fact that God is watching us. Now, understand that this word witness can be used in the Bible in either an active or a passage sense, and the uh, context will determine how it's being used. For instance, in the passive sense, the Apostle Paul will write in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 12 to Timothy, his son in the faith, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I hear the word witness is in reference to a spectator, to those who had witnessed Timothy's confession, to those who had witnessed his ordination. They were passive onlookers. But the word witness can also have an active meaning uh, of someone who is bearing witness. Uh, For instance, um, you may go home this afternoon, and you will actively, either by your lifestyle or by your words, witness the life of Christ. Right now, passively, you are listening to me witness God's truth, but maybe actively, you will be a witness before the week is finished. Well, the cloud of witnesses that are described in chapter 11 are not witnessing us from heaven. Rather, they are witnessing to us by the fact that they believed God and walked with God. They're encouraging us because this is a discouraged church that he is speaking to. People who had their parents and their brothers and sisters and loved ones abandon them because they said, Yeshua is Lord. And they are discouraged and downtrodden. 
and is reminding them that look in the 11th chapter and all those great men and women of faith, many of whom suffered deeply, people of whom the world is not worthy of, the writer will say, yet they believed God and they walked by faith. And so they are examples to us in an active sense, not in a passive sense. They're not onlookers, they're examples of people who looked to God in faith and believed what he had revealed in his word. And so they are cheering us on only in the sense that they are a model to us. In fact, he's getting ready to tell us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Do you remember Peter? And the disciples, they're out there in the boat on the Sea of Galilee, and, and they see this figure on the starboard side, and they think it's a ghost. And they're scared to death. And then they hear Jesus' voice, and he says, Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter, in his characteristic fashion, says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Hey, the scripture says you do not have because you do not ask. And Peter in faith asks, and he's the only other individual in the history of creation who ever walked in water other than Christ. But if you will recall, he takes his eyes off of the author and perfecter of our faith as he begins to focus on the waves and the winds, and he begins to sink, and Jesus has to rescue him. In the same way, the moment you and I take our eyes off of the source, like Elijah did, then your great courage can turn into dis discouragement. The moment you take your eyes off of the source, the only one who is able to protect you and provide for you and work through you, then indeed failure can set in and you will quickly be discouraged. As long as your problem, as long as your Jezebel looks bigger than your God, then those circumstances will cover over and cloud your perspective of the living God. Fast forward to 2 Kings chapter 6 for a moment, a few pages to the right, 2 Kings chapter 6. And as you're turning there, I want to ask you a question that I cannot definitively say I have the answer to. But have you ever wondered if Elijah, who's the protege, Elisha, who's the protege of Elijah, the way I always remembered is J came before S. Someone emailed me and they said, I'm loving your series on Elisha. And I'm thinking, no, I'm not preaching on Elisha, except right now. I'm preaching on Elijah. J comes before S. That's how you can keep it straight. But I wondered if maybe, just maybe, Elijah taught Elisha how to keep a proper perspective from the experiences that he is having that we're witnessing this morning from 1 Kings 19. So here in 2 Kings 6, let's pick it up in verse, um, verse 8. Now the king of Aram was warring against Israel. The Arameans, they were the bad guys, they were arch enemies of Israel. The king of Aram was warring against Israel, and he counseled with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. And the man of God, that's Elisha the prophet, sent word to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass the place, for the Arameans are coming down here. Now, how did Elisha know that? 
God told him that. And it's rather frustrating to the king of Aram that Elisha has inside information, and so he can set the plots against Israel. In fact, verse 11 tells us, now the heart of the king of Aram was enraged over this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, will you tell me which of us is for the king of Israel? Every time he comes up with some top secret plan to attack the king of Israel, God breaks through the security system and that he speaks directly to Elisha. And one of his servants, one of the servants of the king of Aram said, no, my Lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. I love it. You have this one man with a divine intelligence source, and he's able to take on an entire army. So the king gets his entire army to take out Elisha. If he knows all these things, let's take him out. Verse 14, and he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Now when the attendant of the man of God has had risen early and had gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was encircling the city. And the servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Now that's a question of a discouraged person. What in the world are we going to do, Elisha? So Elisha answers him, Do not fear. What do you mean, do not fear? Can't you see what's around us? Put your glasses on, prophet. They're getting ready to kill us, the whole Syrian army. So Elisha comes out, and he takes a look, and he says to his servant here in verse 16, so he answered him, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Elijah, you're not looking very carefully. There's hundreds and hundreds of them. It's just you and me. So Elisha prays a very significant prayer here in verse 17. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. I like that. You see, all the attendant of the man of God could see was the problem, and all Elisha could see was the Lord. Through the eyes of faith, he saw the chariots of fire all around us, and he prays, Lord, open his eyes so that he can realize what is happening in the invisible realm. Now, what was the problem with the servant? Was it that he saw too much? No, it was that he saw too little. And faith recognizes infinitely beyond your senses of seeing and hearing and feeling and touching and smelling what God is able to do. Remember, we studied it a few weeks ago from Numbers 13. The majority of the spies came back from Kadesh Barnea. Moses had sent them out to spy out the land not to see if they could take it because God promised it was theirs, but how they were going to take it. And if you remember, they came back from their mission and were told in Numbers 13 and verse 32, notice the land through which we have gone is spying it out, and spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the peoples whom we saw in it are men of great size. And then they said, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, And so we were in their sight. When they saw the giants, all they could see themselves was themselves, and they saw themselves like little grasshoppers. 
And I suppose had some reporter been on the scene and come up to Caleb, hey, Caleb, did you see what those guys saw? I saw exactly what they saw. They were giant men. They were huge. But he saw something else. He saw God. Are you one of those grasshoppers? Yes, sir, I'm one of those grasshoppers. But my God is bigger than those giants in the land, and he promised us that he would give us that land, and that we are clinging to that promise. By the way, what do you say this morning? Oh, Pastor Carl, the economy is a mess. How are we going to pay our bills? My job is on the brink of distinction. Oh, Pastor Carl, if you could see the pagans down where I work, there's just two of us. They curse, they swear, they tell dirty jokes. Listen, the only thing that needs to distinguish you is the size of your God. Your group may be small, but your God is big. Do you know what I often pray for when I'm in my prayer closet for our people? That God would open our eyes, that together we might believe God to do great things. So I just wonder if Elisha had taught Elisha this truth from his own failures that we're reading about this morning in 1 Kings 19. Because when you forget God, what God did yesterday, then you are going to be quickly consumed by your circumstances today. Now that's the cause of discouragement. There's a second truth I want to underscore from our passage, and it concerns the course of discouragement. There's a certain path that a discouraged person travels down. So let's first examine how Elijah travels a path of isolation. He travels a path of isolation. We read now from 1 Kings 19 and notice verse 3, and he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Bathsheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. The day before, he had taken on 850 prophets single-handedly, but now just one woman says, I'll get you, and so he gets... And so we're told that he left his servant there and he goes to Beersheba. But he himself, as the human author of 1 Kings underscores under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's careful to underscore that he went to Beersheba alone. But he himself, then the text says in verse 4, went a day's journey into the wilderness. It wasn't good enough that he went 120 miles. He now has to go a day's journey, which biblically speaking is typically another 15 to 20 miles. He goes a day's journey into the wilderness. And the text says, and he, Elijah, came and sat down under a juniper tree. Or you could translate it a broom tree. Here's a picture of a juniper tree in the wilderness. Some of you have been with me down to the Dead Sea. And on one of our trips, I pointed out one of these such trees. They grow pretty large in a barren land. They're not a shrub, as one less-than-faithful translation writes. It's a large tree where you could get some shade in the desert. These great hills all around the area, when it rains, it just pours down water. Three trips ago, just before we had gotten there, 18 young students were washed away in one of these floods because when they happen, they happen so quickly. But the water that comes down is able to sustain this particular tree. 
But he goes to a very lonely place. It's a lonely place out there. And discouraged people often feel lonely. They feel despondent. And oftentimes when people are discouraged, they don't want people around. They escape all relationships. Stop and think about it. If you're discouraged this morning, more than likely you are having feelings of loneliness. Discouragement and loneliness tend to be Siamese twins. And it would have been much better had Elijah gotten with someone who might have given him some strength and objectivity. But of course, there weren't many people that were walking with God. But he could have certainly gotten together with the Lord. He said, Lord, I'm feeling so discouraged, even frightened over this woman, Jezebel. Please help me. Please give me your strength right now. And I have no doubt that God, who is our refuge and strength and a very present help in a time of trouble, would have immediately met him and helped him to go through this. And please know that oftentimes the strength that God gives, that he ministers to you, comes by the Spirit of God via another person, another individual. Do you remember the book of Acts? The apostle Paul uh, has been through the ringer. He's been to city after city after city. He's persecuted. He's rejected. He's beaten up. And when he recounts it in his second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 7, he writes these words. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. But we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. Now, how did the Holy Spirit, our comforter, comfort Paul when he found himself, yes, depressed, the text says? He sent him Titus. And if you remember, Elijah, he had come to this point. He was despondent. And God wanted to care for his servant. He could have done it through another individual, but as we'll see this morning, God is going to do it directly. He could have done it sooner, but God is going to do it later. And remember Elijah, he had comforted people directly. When there's a widow who's down to her last meal, remember what we read? Let me read it again to you from 1 Kings 17. Elijah said to that widow, as the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour, the widow said, in the bowl, and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I am gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat and die. Then Elijah says to her, here's God bringing comfort through an individual. Do not fear. Oh my, that's great advice. That sounds like good biblical counsel. But when the preacher says, I'm scared, I need to get out of here, he doesn't take his own advice. And sometimes when there's a problem or a challenge in my life, in ministry, and my wife senses I'm discouraged, she said, you know, I heard a preacher preach a sermon once, and he said such and such about so-and-so, and she virtually quotes me verbatim. And I said, that's great advice. He's a good preacher. She's trying to get me to live out what I preached. And if you're going through some discouragement, God may bring another person alongside to help you. But if you just look into the face of your problem 24-7, instead of looking into the face of God, you're going to live in that discouragement. To listen again to today's message from 1 Kings 19, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, 
or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program ELI-5. Search the Scriptures is made possible through the prayers and generosity of listeners like you. Tomorrow, Dr. Brogy's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll conclude our message, Overcoming Discouragement, part of our study of the prophet Elijah as we search the Scriptures. <music> 